Well, today's Bible reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because, the ark of, because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes." When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, 
how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Wasn't it just excellent to hear from Barb and to see how Trinity Church Pracker is going on its public launch? It's just so exciting. For me, I just feel this this overwhelming sense of excitement just to see what the the days and the the months ahead hold for Pracker. Uh, I feel like a, a sense of joy. I can't wait to see what, what's going to happen there, what God's going to do. Because really it's been such a long time in the making today. I mean, think about it. Uh, Ten years ago, this church was planted. About five years ago, we sent out Golden Grove. And, and ever since that time, we've been pushing towards the next church plant. In 2018, I think it was, we brought on Scott Westwood, who would eventually lead out that, that church plant. And then at the start of this year, we brought on coops so that Scott would be able to go. And we've prayed about it. People have given generously. We, we really stretched ourselves to send 70 people this time. And God enabled it to happen. And then since August, the church plant there has been meeting, getting ready, planning, hoping, dreaming, praying, all for this day and the future that's ahead of, ahead of them. And I can't wait to hear how it all goes. We heard a little bit from Barb just then, and it sounds like it started well. But imagine if we had have zoomed in to Barb just now, and in, instead of smiley, bubbly Barb, who we normally see, imagine if Barb had have been there, pale, in shock, and imagine if she said to us, actually, it's been a disaster. It started well, everyone was so excited and, and the singing was just amazing. But then after the first set of songs, the service leader got up the front and they've had some kind of medical episode and they've died. And everyone's just thinking, what on earth has happened? After all this work that we've done, why would God let this happen? Could you imagine that? Now, I feel like sending Barb a text just to make sure that it hasn't happened, but I'm a bit superstitious. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it won't happen there. I'm sure it won't happen here. Just relax, Jane. I think it'll be okay. I did say earlier that I had this weird dream that someone got murdered by one of these stands last night. But no, we're not superstitious. But imagine how confusing, confronting, absolutely awful that would be, thinking, God, we've done all this. Why have you allowed this to happen? Well, something much bigger than that, much more confusing, much more confronting than what I just described, happened to King David. David and all the people of Israel rejoicing, bringing up the Ark of the Covenant, all before God, worshipping him, and yet somehow Uzzah ends up dead because of God. 
and it's confusing and confronting to David and to us. And yet, it teaches some incredibly important lessons to us. Now, just before we, we jump into the, the details of, of what happened, let me rem- remind you where we're up to in this true story so far. So remember, this is 3,000 years ago, around about, that we're talking about. Last year in 1 Samuel, the first book, we saw that God's people, they were in a terrible state. They weren't serving God faithfully. And as a result, God had handed them over to their enemies. But instead of turning back to God at that point as their king, what they did instead is they wanted a human king who would lead them in battle against their enemies. And so God gave them what they wanted. He gave them Saul, who was a king just like every other king. And it was a disaster. Last year, we saw the the rise of Saul And then tragically, we saw the fall of Saul as he turned his back on God. And remember how 1 Samuel finishes? With Saul and Jonathan dead. Most of the army of of God's people dead or scattered. And more cities than ever lost to the Philistine invaders. But we also saw in 1 Samuel that God promised to raise up a new kind of king. A king unlike other kings, a king of his own choice. And and we saw over the space of, of more than a decade, David trusting God, obeying God, waiting on God, waiting for that day that he would be made king. And do you remember last week? We finally got to see that day come. Finally, David is, is made king over one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, and then all the tribes come to him. And he's finally made the king over Israel. It was a great moment last week in this true story. But still, it wasn't kind of one of those moments where you could go and they all lived happily ever after. Not at that point. Because things were a mess in the kingdom. Their land was occupied by the Philistines. There'd been civil war between the tribes. And so we're actually left, where we left last week, we're actually left thinking, how on earth is David going to hold all this together, this fragile mess? And in fact, when the Philistines hear that David's been made king over all Israel, they set out in full force to find him. And I don't think they're coming with a congratulations card. They're coming to get rid of him before he can do anything in Israel. Now, we know that David survives as a king and and the narrator, he he gives us a summary in 5 verse 4 in case we miss it. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. So we already know his kingdom survives. But the question is how? How does it survive? And what sort of kingdom is it, is it going to be like? And what sort of king is David going to be like? That's what we see answered in this next part of this true story. That's what we're going to be looking at today. I'm going to very quickly summarise chapter 5, which wasn't read for us, but which we're also looking at. And then we're going to slow down a little bit in chapter 6. So the first thing David does when he becomes king over all Israel is to find a new city to rule from. When David was just king of Judah, God told him to go to Hebron, which is in the middle of Judah, which you can see there circled in red. But now that he was king over all Israel, David chooses Jerusalem as his capital, which is a really smart choice. You know, where do you put the capital of Australia? 
Sydney, that's a big city. Melbourne, that's a big city. No way. That'd be a disaster. You go in the middle, you find a sheep paddock, you start from scratch, and that's where you put the capital city. You don't want Sydney people thinking they own it, or Melbourne, they already think they own enough. Now, Jerusalem is an even smarter choice than that. It's on the border of of Judah and Benjamin, you can see it there, and it's much closer to all the other tribes, and it's actually occupied by enemies of God's people right there in the middle of their country who are threatening the, the security of the country. So rather than move his city to a place that's already owned by another tribe where David would have had to negotiate everything, here he gets to start from scratch. And what's more, Jerusalem is this natural stronghold, so strong that when David turns up to capture the city, that his enemies laugh at him. But David does capture Jerusalem. He strengthens it even more. He makes alliances and he builds a palace. And at this point in chapter 5, things are finally looking good for Israel. And you know what usually happens to kings at this point? This is usually where good kings start to go bad. It's usually when they start to pat themselves on the back and get impressed by their own brilliance and manoeuvring and power and success. Now, David is definitely not perfect. There's indications even in the text here that he's not perfect. But he is a different kind of king. Look at 5 verse 12. Look at when all this had happened, what we see. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Do you see that? David clearly sees that it's it's God who has established his kingdom, not him. And he clearly sees that God does it for the sake of his people, not for David's ego. God establishes David's kingdom for the sake of his own people. Don't you wish there were more leaders like this? Leaders who don't promote their own greatness. Leaders who are not interested in their own glory, their own name and think it's all about them. Leaders who don't pat themselves on the back and think that everything is totally under their control. David, he's not perfect, but he is a leader who looks to God and who leads for the sake of God's people. Now, what happens next is the the Philistines arrive on the scene, they they, they get there, and David again relies on God, and God delivers him not once, but twice from the Philistines. And if you've got a really good good memory, you might remember that way back at the start of 1 Samuel, that Israel was actually defeated not once, but twice by the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took over heaps of the land. It was a really dark days. But this time, in two battles, David wins and he drives out the Philistines from Gibeon to Giza, which I think you can see on the map up here where the red arrow is. In other words, he reclaims the territory that Saul had lost and he ends the Philistine occupation of Israel. So what we have is in the space of just a few verses, David has united God's people. He's defeated an old enemy that they could never quite deal with there in Jerusalem. 
He set up a strategic and a strong capital. And he's defeated the Philistines and liberated Israel from their rule. And yet, probably most remarkable of all, is that he fully sees that this is God who's done this. And it's not for his sake, but for the sake of God's people. The tide has really turned at this point. Now, Israel is still surrounded by hostile enemies, but now things are a lot more secure for Israel. So what will David do next? In some ways, whatever he does next reveals the, the character of his kingship. Now that he's got a little bit of breathing space, what's going to be important to him? Well, this brings us to chapter 6, where we're going to slow down just a little bit. And what David does next is surprising. Have a look at it with me in verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalar in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now, whatever David's doing, we're getting enough signals here that, it, that it's super important, right? The last time that all Israel had been brought together like this was when they came to David to make him king. He's gathering an army of 30,000 young men from all Israel. And it's not to fight a battle, it's to bring up the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, if you're feeling a little bit confused about why the Ark of the Covenant is so important then probably you're in the same boat as those young men who David has gathered. See, the ark had been all but forgotten in the last few decades. It had been sitting in, in someone's barn for years, neglected. Now, the ark was a decorated wooden box, like you can see there, covered in, in gold that had been built back in the days of Moses. And it was to be kept in the most holy place of, of the tabernacle, the, the tent, the meeting place with God. It was a symbol. It represented God's relationship with his people. It represented God's presence with his people. It was like his, his throne, or probably more like his footstool, his throne in heaven, his footstool on earth. And so it was to be treated extremely carefully. But a few decades ago, Israel had brought the ark out to a battle like a, a lucky charm when they were fighting the Philistines and it had been captured and put in the Philistines' temple of their God. And then what happened is wherever the ark went, you might remember from 1 Samuel, disaster followed until finally the Philistines admitted defeat and sent the ark back to Israel. And Israel, they'd... they'd the town that it came to had rejoiced initially when it first arrived, but then they too failed to treat it carefully and some of them had died and so they'd parked the ark in a barn safely out of the way, slowly being forgotten. And the thing is, how they treated the ark, the symbol of God's presence with them, reflected how they treated God. See, under Saul... Their preference was to have God safely out of the way, slowly being forgotten. But David, he's a different kind of king. 
he decides that the very first thing he does now that he has a bit of breathing space is to lead Israel to stop neglecting the ark and so to stop neglecting God. So that's why David gathers all these men from all Israel. Do you see what's happening? This is a huge moment in the life of the nation. This is a a turning back to God. This is David saying that his kingdom is going to be centred on God. So this enormous party, 30,000 people and, and, and more, travels 15 kilometres from Jerusalem to this tiny town where the ark's been all but forgotten. And they put it on a new cart and they set off. And as they go, there's, there's a real sense of authentic joy and celebration. Did, did you get that as it was being read? Look again at verse 5. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums and cymbals. This must have been an amazing thing to to see and hear. I mean, I, I don't even know what half of those instruments are. God is finally being restored to the heart of Israel. David's doing him a real favor here, right? But then there's, there's a bit of a bump in the road and there's a massive bump in David's plan. Have a look at verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and, and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Could you imagine this? You know, those who are, who are really close by would have seen what happened, but everywhere else down the road, it would have taken a while for the message to be passed down, for the music to stop being played. You can imagine two people down the road as the message got kind of passed down. One says, why have we stopped? And the other says, someone's died. And the first says, well, that's sad, but we've been here for a while, shouldn't we keep going? And the second says, Well, the problem is it was Uzzah who died, who was looking after the ark. What? One of the priests? Yeah, apparently he touched the ark and God broke out against him. Why would God break out against Uzzah? Well, that's what seems to have David so worried. Look at him up there pacing backwards and forwards. But I mean, how could God do that? How could he not be happy with all of this? I mean, I've never seen all of Israel so united and focused on him. Shouldn't he be happy with what we're doing for him? Yeah, I hear you, I know. I don't get it either. You can imagine the conversations that must be happening. It's confusing. It's confronting. Now, we don't know exactly what Uzzah did wrong. It's not clear and we're not told. But what is clear is that there are some pretty important lessons to take from this. Confronting lessons. Countercultural lessons. Lessons like this. Like, just because worship is authentic, just because it comes from our heart, it doesn't mean it's automatically acceptable to God. Lessons like, just because we have good intentions... It doesn't mean that God owes it to us to honour them. Lessons like 
we need to be careful not to presume on God, not to presume that we have him picked. And especially we need to be careful not to presume that we have God under our control. And there's another lesson here that's true but confronting. The reality is that God doesn't have to give an account to us for his actions. He's not answerable to us. He doesn't have to win our approval as if we're the source of all goodness and wisdom. His reason, his reason for doing things are often hidden from us. They're often hidden from us. And it's confronting. But it's actually incredibly important that we are confronted by this. Because would you hold God to account? And weigh up his actions? Is your approach to God to see whether you approve of him or not? That's all too often how we approach God, isn't it? But it's a flawed approach that makes us think that God is whoever we would evaluate him to be. And believe me, you do not want to meet the judge of all the earth pretending that it's your place to sit in judgment on him. We need to give up that kind of thinking. Now, the truth is we find it hard to swallow that God doesn't have to answer to us. God is good and he is just, but he's not tame and he will never come under our control. This was an incredibly important lesson for David to learn, especially as David attempted to bring the ark into the city, which was now under his control. God establishes David's kingdom, but he must never forget who is really king. Look at how David responds to what God does in verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Now here, and don't you just love it, here we see the sheer honesty of the Bible. It doesn't gloss over things. David... He was angry. He was quite happy for God's anger to break out against the Philistines, which we read about in chapter 5. Well, you can read about in chapter 5. But he's not happy for God's anger to break out against one of his own people doing what he wants them to do. We're not told exactly who David's angry with. It could be he's angry with God. But whatever the case, it's not saying that that David is giving up on God. Because he's not just angry. In verse 9 we read... David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Now, this is the right response. David, he still wants the ark of the Lord, the symbol of God's presence, to be with him. But now he's also afraid. And so he should be. Now, fear, it's not all we should feel towards God. We really can feel love and trust and rejoice in God. But the wonder and the depth of our love and trust and joy will only properly be shaped when we first properly fear him. If you don't fear God, your love and your trust and your joy will always be stunted. See, God's not under our control at all. And that is a fearful thing. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. God's the same merciful God in the Old Testament 
as he is the awesome and holy God in the New Testament. Which is why the New Testament writer can say in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 28, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, when you stop fearing God, eventually you'll also stop loving Him and trusting Him and finding joy in Him. Because you'll stop seeing the wonder of what Jesus has done. You'll stop seeing the wonder of Jesus turning God's anger away from you completely. If you don't first fear God, then you won't see your need to hide in Jesus and you won't feel love and trust and joy that God has saved you completely while ever you hide in Jesus. So fear was the right response for David. It's the right response for us. But let's come back to him. He asked the question, how can the ark come to me? And he just doesn't have the answer at this point. So they abandon the ark again. But this time they leave it in the house of a Philistine. That's what it means that he was a Gittite, a Philistine who lives in the area. Now maybe it's because no Israelite was game to take it into their house and for some reason this guy was. Whatever the case, something really strange happens. Look at verse 12. Now King David was told... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. God blesses even this Philistine. Now, again, don't think of the ark as a kind of lucky charm. That would be to make the same mistake as, as the Israelites. That's not what's going on here. Remember, the ark symbolizes God's presence with his people. God's heart is to bless his people, not to strike them down. God's heart is to bless all the descendants of Abraham and through them to bless all the nations of the world, including this Philistine living there amongst his people. And God does that not because Obed-Edom deserves it, but because that's the kind of God that he is. And after three months, David hears that, that God's done this. And no doubt this whole time his mind has had this question turning over and over again. How can I honour God if I can't even bring the symbol of his presence here into the capital? But when David hears that God is blessing even this Philistine, well, he takes it as a sign that God's not against them. He's for them. And it gives him the courage to try again. Now, last time, right, there was no doubt they were genuine. There was no doubt that their hearts were in it. They, they were everything that we love as a culture. They, they had all the buzzwords. They were authentic. They were heartfelt. They were free. They were spiritual, uninhibited. They were in the moment, right? But despite all that being true, there was also a tinge of presumption in what David did. God hadn't told David to go and get the ark. And while David's worship had been heartfelt and and joyous had it been careful now careful is definitely not a, a cultural buzzword is it you know who these days says are you careful in your spirituality are you careful in your worship no one talks like that we tend to think as long as our spirituality is genuine then god should be happy with it as long as our praise is, is heartfelt then it's good enough and we find the idea of careful worship offensive. 
Because we don't like the idea that, that God could say to us, that's actually not how I want to be worshipped. Cain didn't like that when God said, no, your worship is not acceptable, but your brother's is. And he killed his brother. Saul didn't like it when, when Samuel came to him and said, no, your worship, that sacrifice, is not acceptable. And he led the nation of Israel astray. David didn't like it when God broke out against Uzzah. But David did what we so often refuse to do. He humbles himself before God. And so this time when David brings up the ark, he's authentic, he's heartfelt, but he's also careful. God had given clear instructions to Moses how the ark was to be transported. But last time, what did David do? Well, he slapped it on a new cart. He didn't get that idea from God. He seems to have gotten the idea from the Philistines. And there was no reference to him covering the ark like he was supposed to last time either. But this time he's careful to follow God's instructions. And we even read in verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. The ark was supposed to be carried by priests, carefully placing poles through it. And this time it is, but not only that, this time, rather than presume on God being happy with what they're doing just because he should be, this time David presumes that they're unworthy to be in God's presence. And on the seventh step, a sacrifice is made. They still rejoice. You know, there's actually more of a party this time than last time. The, the, the problem wasn't that God wanted a somber kind of sad march to Jerusalem. The problem was that David needed to fear God enough to follow his law and to not presume he could control him. But there's something else that our attention is drawn to that David does differently. Look at verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Now, why is this being drawn to our attention? Well, it's because David this time is not in his royal robes. He's in the outfit of an ordinary kind of person, a servant even. You know, this is the same outfit that Samuel would wear when he was serving in the tabernacle. And the point that's being made is that David is humbling himself before God and before the people he serves. And this is exactly what Michal doesn't like, David's wife. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now, Michal, Saul's, da Saul's daughter, she doesn't really see the ark entering the city. She doesn't really see David honouring God, David serving his people. She sees a king that looks like a fool. She wants David to be a proud king like Saul, her father. But this king who humbles himself before God and before all people, well, she despises him. She's embarrassed by him. Look at verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, 
Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Seems that sarcasm has been around causing trouble in marriages for quite a a while now, 3,000 years at least. And she gets even more bitter than this. Listen to this. She, she twists David's genuine, heartfelt, humble worship of God into something sexual and perverse. She says, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. She's disgusted that he lowered himself like that. And she mocks his worship of God. Her problem is not just that she's an elitist. Her problem is she's missing the joy and the beauty of what God is doing here. And it's interesting that even still, what is often mocked in our world is our worship of God when our world misses what God is doing. Now, finally, here is a king. This is what God is doing. Finally, here is a king that knows he's only king because of God, the true king. Finally, a king who rules for the sake of God's people. Finally, he is a servant king, a servant of God, a servant of the people. God has established David's kingdom for him to rule as a servant. And David says to her, despite her disapproval, This is the kind of king he's going to be. Look at verse 22. He says to her, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. David, unlike most of the kings of this world, he's not going to grasp at glory and honour. He knows that real joy is found in humility before God. Whereas Michal, in her pride, finds only bitterness. So we leave the story at this point, until next week. We leave the story with the Ark of the Covenant there in David's capital in Jerusalem. We asked at the beginning, how would David succeed? And what kind of kingdom would he have? And what kind of king would he be? And as David brings the ark into Jerusalem? We see the answer to all of these questions. David succeeds because of God. His kingdom is one that's not only centred on God, that's what he had to learn, one that's subject to God. And he's the type of king that people need, a king who humbly, joyfully serves God and his people. Have you noticed the way that David strikingly points to a future king? Have you you noticed the way this imperfect king gives the shape of the perfect king to come? A king who, although being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. A king who rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, a king who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now some of us look away in disgust at the type of king that Jesus is. 
Some of us, like Makar, we, we mock what we see. But others, we see in Jesus the king we need. A king unlike any other. The servant king who leads us to fear God properly. And so to love and trust God properly. We see the servant king who leads us to leave pride behind and bitterness behind and to find the joy that can only come when we walk in humility before our God. If you've never made Jesus your king, do it today. He's the king you need in your life. Now, I'd love to talk with you more about him. Why don't you come and chat with me afterwards? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your, your word, how amazing and powerful it is, the way it points so wonderfully to Jesus, the way it shows us our desperate need for a king, your king that you've provided for us, the way it leads our heart to worship, not the kind of empty, plastic worship of this world, but true worship in spirit and truth as we bend the knee before you the good and just and holy king as we love you trust you and find true joy and humility before you lord do that work in our hearts and our lives by your spirit and we pray this in jesus name amen